Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, things move on in the virus field, as they seem to every day. The deputy chief medical officers warned social distancing measures could be in place for six months or more. Speaking at last night's press conference, Jenny Harris said it would take two to three months to see whether the peak had been squashed. But she warned of lots of uncertainty around the timing. And the former Justice Secretary, David Gork, says the government is rising to the enormous challenge that it faces. I'm struck by the fact that, for example, new hospitals are being able to be created in a handful of days, that we've been able to attract vast numbers of former NHS healthcare workers, and if they can be made use of, uh, that's terrific. That was the uh, former Justice Secretary David Gork there. Comes as Boris Johnson revealing that 20,000 former NHS workers have returned to help fight the coronavirus. Boris Johnson himself, of course, we learnt last Friday, uh, testing positive for the coronavirus. Today, the Evening Standard reporting that Dominic Cummings, his chief advisor, having symptoms at the weekend and is now in self-isolation. So it's something that's ripping through the top brass of government. But let's get into this with Alistair Carmichael. He joins us now. He's a Lib Dem spokesperson for foreign affairs and Brexit. Chief Whip and MP for Orkney and Shetland, somewhere I'd much rather be than central London, I've got to say. Uh, Alistair, let's get into this. What do we do then if these current measures don't work? Concerns around uh, the length of time that we're all going to be sat inside for? Well, you have to do what you always have to do in these situations, and you follow the best medical and scientific evidence that is available. You're asking me to guess what that will be in, say, you know, 12 weeks' time. Um, I don't know yet what that will actually mean. But, you know, this is a moment where uh, it's maybe not fashionable in politics these days, but you have to trust the experts. And, you know, I, there is a sense that the government are now doing that in a meaningful way. They did get a bit of a wake-up call from some of the, the studies that were done in places like University College London. And to their credit, they have responded to that. There's always a sense that maybe we're playing catch-up here, but as long as we do catch-up, frankly, that's what matters to me. And I mean, a lot of emphasis on testing, a lot of people experiencing symptoms obviously don't know whether they've got it or not. I know you yourself are self-isolating at the moment, as we now hear potentially is Dominic Cummings as well. But should there be an aim to test every citizen? Former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt says there should be. 
Well, in relation to my own position, first of all, I'm self-isolating as a precaution because I've come back from London, which was a hot spot to Orkney, which still has no reported cases. And also my wife is asthmatic and she is a veterinary surgeon, is a key worker. So I felt it was sensible to be cautious. I think that actually, yes, that mass testing is a good and sensible objective for us to have. It's probably not going to be uh, realistic in the early term. So really, for the moment, I think the government's priority in encouraging people to do the right thing for themselves is probably a sensible one. But if we are going to find a way out of the current lockdown, then yes, testing, 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 as they keep saying, is going to be absolutely key to that. And Alistair, you mentioned London being a hotbed, no more so than Parliament. And we've seen many of your colleagues come down with the illness currently due to reopen on April the 21st. Do you think that is that is early or, or, or late enough? Rather, it seems that even in a few weeks time, we're still going to be in the midst of all of this. I think we absolutely have to reopen Parliament on the 21st of April, possibly even earlier if there were some sort of crisis. But uh, what we also have to do, uh, be is, is open and flexible in what our actual meaning in practical terms of opening Parliament is going to be. Is it going to be bringing back 650 MPs from all corners of the country? Absolutely not. I just don't think that's sensible. I certainly don't want to be sitting in amongst people uh, sort of shoulder to shoulder, any number of whom could be carrying the virus and being asymptomatic. So I think we have to look at different ways of doing it. I think for the parties, we should be getting together at the moment to agree a number of MPs that we will have brought back. We also have to be open to using distance communication. You know, I, I'm communicating still with everybody that I would be having meetings with where I in London uh, using my laptop and, and video conferencing. We're going to have to do a lot more of that sort of thing. And we should also, I think, be looking at following the example of New Zealand. In New Zealand, they've cancelled all the, the legislation, so there's no votes of any consequence. Um, but they've got a super committee of MPs, which can also involve uh, video conferencing and dial-in. And that c committee has a majority of opposition MPs on it. It's chaired by the leader of the opposition. And in that way, there is a meaningful holding of the government to account. Because, you know, the normal, uh, the, the priority has got to be on, on getting uh, coronavirus under control. But the normal business of holding the government to account for that must continue. But and if you want a good example on why that matters, look at the situation with regard to self-employed people, which is massively unsatisfactory, but which was announced after Parliament had risen and no government minister has really had to provide a satisfactory explanation for but, it. But there is in that, Alice, as you'd admit, a, you know, a kind of suspension of process going on, which is the problem. And I mean, in your own party, even, I mean, you know, you talk about forming a, a, a committee, perhaps bringing together people uh, from all sides. But you, you, your own party doesn't have a proper leadership process because you suspended that. You don't have a leader. I mean, it is already having an effect. We have a, an interim leader, and we have had an interim leader since the general election. And, uh, you know, in that way, leadership can be provided. You know, yes, it's not uh, desirable that that continues for too long. 
um, but there have to be a, a sort of hierarchy of priorities here. And right at the moment, the priority for the party is focusing on doing what it needs to do for the people in the various communities that it represents, rather than running around the countries uh, holding hustings and uh, you know doing a bit of internal navel gazing. So, you know, nobody's comfortable with the, the position that we have come to, but I think everybody is persuaded that it's necessary. And as to what about the people of Orkney and Shetland? How are they getting on with all of this? Are they responding well to the government measures? Uh, well, I, the, the impression I have is that they are. Uh, the advantage that we have in both Orkney and in Shetland is that we're stronger, uh, sort of smaller communities. So we have a more intuitive re- community response to a, a crisis situation like this. The situation in both islands is different. We've had a significant number of cases in Shetland. We've had one person who had to be evacuated by the RAF to uh, the Scottish mainland in order to get intensive treatment because we don't have that facility in Shetland. Uh, in Orkney, we've still got no reported cases. And, uh, you know, my impression is that uh, looking just at social media, because I don't see any of this because I'm not going out much myself other than to, to walk the dog in an afternoon, my impression is that people are being responsible and that, uh, you know, they are while social distancing, looking after each other, which I think is how it ought to be. Indeed, I mean, I guess, you know, as you say, you're not necessarily encountering people, but people are still bringing you their problems, perhaps ringing in or whatever, I imagine. And the way I imagine the economy works on Orkney and Shetland is a lot of it tourism-based, of course, but also farming, fishing, the kind of things that would be really damaged in a crisis like this, because there isn't a continuity of business, no continuity of wages or anything like that. Uh, absolutely. For the tourism industry, for the visitor economy, this is going to be absolutely desperate, and especially in a community like ours, because it's highly seasonal. We've just come out of the six lean months over the winter, and we've got very few visitors, and people find other things to do with their time. And we were anticipating going into the six busy months, uh, starting with, with Easter, where all the seasonal work, the uh, the, the tourism uh, guides, the food and drink businesses, the craft businesses would all be cranking up to bring in the bulk of their sales. A lot of these people are obviously self-employed, and it's part of the offer that makes Orkney and Shetland a very special attraction when it comes to, to looking for something that is a bit different. So yes, we are being hit. Um, at the moment, uh, the indications are that uh, the, the product from uh, fishing and from farming is still ticking over, it's still going into the, the production line as it ought to do, but that is very vulnerable to all sorts of changes, especially in our case in transportation. So you're not going to take anything for granted at the moment. Every sector in a community like this is absolutely crucial, and if you take one brick out of the wall, then the whole thing risks collapsing. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
let's have a look at some of the other stories making the news in the world this Monday. Uh, Roger, what have we got? Well, misinformation is a key one because the government's taking its coronavirus battle online, setting up a group to deal with false claims and misinformation about the pandemic. The Rapid Response Unit will apparently tackle false information and fraud about the uh, epidemic or the pandemic, and it will coordinate with different departments to respond through directory battles on social media or working with platforms to remove content. Up to 70 incidents a week, apparently, are being identified and resolved, with examples including advice to hold your breath for 10 seconds to determine if you have the virus or to gargle water as a cure. I thoroughly recommend the police search my phone and uh, look at every WhatsApp group I'm in because I think they'll find all of these false claims somewhere in there by people trying to find a way to battle the virus. Anyway, we're also looking at uh, engineers from Mercedes Formula One and University College London. They're helping to develop a new breathing aid for coronavirus patients. According to UCL, the device is going to cut the need for invasive mechanical ventilation among patients and has already been approved for use in the NHS. It'll also ensure that ventilators, which are currently limited, uh, as we know, are used for the most severely ill. We've got 100 devices are going to be delivered by uh, to, to the UCL hospitals for clinical tri- trials, and then they're going to plan, hopefully, to roll these out very quickly to other hospitals soon after. Right, now we mentioned Brexit a few moments ago by accident. Remember that? Remember Nick Timothy? Yes, now he was the man who was very much the chief advisor to Theresa May. Remember her? I mean, it all seems to to disappear into the distant past. Anyway, he's got a nice piece in The Telegraph today talking about the economic effects of the virus and the aftermath. The headline is, we do not have to return to austerity economics after the COVID-19 crisis. He first of all quotes a Tory MP saying to him, we're going back to square one, 10 years of austerity. Now the virus is ruining public finances all over again. God knows where this leaves Boris's plan to level up the country. But, Timothy says, it's not yet clear from an economic perspective things are that bad. They are, he says, quite plainly severe economic consequences to the virus crisis, but despite the cost of the government's extraordinary policy response and despite the difficulty of raising taxes, there's no need, he says, for the Prime Minister and his Chancellor to sacrifice their ambitions. The country will need massive investment long after the crisis has passed. They should stick to their guns, he says. A little bit sceptical of that, because I feel like it relies on the assumption that we know how long this is going to go on for. Uh, And presumably the longer it goes on for, the more expensive it gets and the more money we need to pay for it all. But anyway, let's move on. Have a look at another story that's made headlines recently. It's around police surveillance of walkers on the Peak District. I don't know if you saw this one, Roger. I love this. Derbyshire police criticised for releasing drone footage of people in pairs rambling through the area. So they've gone and filmed people who are doing non-essential travel. Uh, and the force saying they're just applying the legislation that the government has passed and uh, defending it on that pace basis. Now, and that really sort of raises the argument around uh, the, the validity and just how far this legislation has gone. Yeah, and, and they went even further, Seb. There was an extraordinary story last night. There's something called the Blue Pool in, in the Derbyshire Peak District, which okay. people go to see. And they went and dyed it black so that people wouldn't go and see it. Uh, extraordinary stuff. Uh, that's mad. I've heard of this, but is this the one that's naturally very, very blue, but you shouldn't yes. swim in it because it's something horrible chemically? Very interesting. Well, anyway, let's dig into this conversation. Move it away from the Peak District. So let's bring in Hannah Couchman, Policy and Campaigns Officer at Liberty. This is the human rights organisation that's called this uh, coronavirus legislation the biggest restriction on our freedom in a generation. So Hannah, let's start with this sort of thing we're seeing from the police. Is this showing the vagueness in the legislation that they're able to interpret it in this way and push it this far? 
I think certainly it's enormously concerning to see the police enforcing apparent laws that actually don't exist on the statute at all. So surveilling people as they try and go about their everyday lives, doing things that, to all intents and purposes, the government has encouraged them to do, to take walks alone away from people. So to see this drone surveillance taking place against those people, naming and shaming them, or at least showing them on social media, is extraordinary. We're obviously facing an extraordinarily dangerous pandemic, us and people across the world. And it should be treated first and foremost as a public health emergency and not a criminal justice matter. Yeah, but isn't isn't that the point? There's a difficulty in finding the balance between saving our liberty and saving our lives. And that isn't a clear a clear balance. Maybe Derbyshire Police has got it right. that You have to be extreme in the defence of our lives so that we later on can enjoy the liberty. I think Derbyshire Police have got it wrong here. And actually, there has been outcry across the country about the kind of measures they're indulging in. I think what we have seen is communities coming together, showing that they're absolutely willing to make really significant changes to the way they live their life to prevent spread. We've seen these mutual aid groups springing up across the country. So looking to community cooperation and goodwill is essential here. Heavy-handed police powers are not going to get us through this. But isn't this a a time that's very unique when civil liberties may have to be suspended for a while just to get through what is a severe health emergency? Of course, it goes without saying that the UK government has an obligation to protect life. And some of the powers that we're talking about here are vital. But as you said, liberty are calling this some of the most drastic restriction on our civil liberties in a generation. And there's good reason for that. The powers are vast and invasive forcibly quarantining people without a time limit, criminal records if they don't comply, police and immigration officials detaining people for testing, breaking up gatherings, including things like demonstrations and protests, closing borders, postponing elections. These are extraordinary. And of course, even though there are now provisions in place for MPs to review these measures every six months, they have to consider them as a whole. They can't pick and choose the more and less restrictive measures. Yeah, you say uh, reviewing them every six months. But I suppose there's a, there's a risk, certainly in some people's minds, that maybe these measures will be found to be a bit convenient for some people in authority and might not entirely disappear at the end of this crisis. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the key risks here. Parliament can actually extend these powers beyond two years. We obviously say they should be curtailed much sooner. And a lot of these powers hint at a more oppressive and heavy handed police state that I think we need to be extraordinarily cautious around. As I say, there are some powers here that are important. There are some things that are designed to keep us safe. But when it comes to the sort of surveillance that you've been talking about and a lack of clarity around what people actually are and aren't allowed to do, what we're likely to see is police powers not being applied in an even way, being used to particularly over-police communities like people of colour, like those on lower income, and of course the people that the government are identifying as high risk. So there's a real concern here that those people could be discriminated against. Older people, disabled people, pregnant people, people being discriminated against on the basis of their nationality. There are an enormous number of potential concerns here. All right, Hannah, thank you very much. That was Hannah Couchman, their policy and campaigns officer at Liberty. Well, let's continue the conversation more widely. Bring in uh, Stuart Biggs, Bloomberg's government editor, and look at how the UK is handling the coronavirus. Stuart, you've been looking at uh, at testing kits and uh, how they've been sort of 
produced uh, and looking at being distributed. What, what are you seeing there? Well, the testing is becoming the big sort of political controversy of the of this outbreak, isn't it? In the sense that, on the one hand, the government says, you know, widespread testing, I think they themselves used the word, could be a game changer in terms of how long this outbreak uh, goes on and particularly how long the lockdown measures have to be in place. But on the other hand, you know, having said that, uh, the government is having to defend its performance and even noted last week that obviously it's um, lagging behind other countries, including uh, Germany and South Korea. And, and I think the chief medical officer even said last week that we need to look at some other countries to see how they're doing it. So, you know, on the one hand, a game changer. On the other hand, uh, why aren't we testing more? And also, of course, there is still the issue about providing the technology to deal with the cases that we already have. I mean, ventilators... Headlines again today talking about possibly uh, some of the assessments of the numbers that we've got being well under what we actually do have. Is there a sense the government's got a grip on this ventilator issue yet? With the ventilators, it's obviously um, a, an issue with how to ramp up the scale and the, and the capacity very far. There's also the way that uh, the programme works in the sense that, you know, they... They did this very um, public sort of appeal for various companies to get involved and to come up with designs and then for that those designs to be worked through the system. But what, what we're seeing at the moment is that designs are being put forward that now need to reach this sort of um, regulatory approval, which is an extra hurdle in the steps. And so that sort of explains why an, a policy announced um, several weeks ago has become, you know, a delay in terms of seeing these machines um, appear in hospitals. And what about the EU ventilator spat? We spoke about this a bit on Friday, uh, that there was some confusion, potentially a mix-up, it's being called, between the UK and the EU about whether Britain can take part in the bloc's uh, ventilator programme. Where are we with that? Is the UK going to work with the EU, or are they going this alone? It's not entirely clear, and and I think the, the, the Prime Minister's spokesman sort of um, contributed to some of this confusion around the uh, around the programme, initially saying that it's because we've left the EU, and then later in the day, I think the government backtracked and said, actually, you know, some emails didn't arrive. Um, where we are now is that, um, you know, the, the government has said that it's willing to look at the programmes, but also you've got voices in high up in the NHS saying, actually, there's no real advantage necessarily to doing it that way. So I think, you know, at the moment, I think the government's uh, position is that they're going to look at where they can get ventilators the quickest and won't be, you know, um, ruling anything out in that sense. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth. 
and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.